The doctrine of singleness. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. I, I'm going to go in a little bit of a dif- different direction than I was expecting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, on the family series that I had given you, the, the little chart of all of the messages I was going to teach, tonight the final message, the, uh, the, the message that would send us out was going to be communication in marriage. And, and certainly communication in marriage is an important thing. And as I was praying about communication in marriage and I was asking the Lord exactly where He would want me to go, of course, I don't often preach topical messages. Uh, normally, I just start at chapter 1, verse 1 and go to the end of the book. But, um, but as I was praying about it, the Lord was just not giving me peace about preaching that message. And so a couple of weeks ago, as I'm studying, as I'm starting to write the sermon, um, I started praying, well, Lord, what would you have me to preach? And he laid upon my heart th- this idea. See, in our family series, we spent a lot of time, and rightfully so, talking about the family, right? We have spent six weeks, 12 messages, 11 messages thus far, speaking on the family. And uh, inherent in the concept of family is marriage. And marriage, and, uh, and it's not necessarily that way in culture today, but it's designed that way by God, right? That you get married, that you come together, that you create a new family unit, that you have children, um, that those children grow with a mother and with a father, one man, one woman for life, all of that stuff. And, and that, that's the design that God has placed. And this series has indeed applied to everyone in some way. Uh, for even if you've never been married, you are a part of a family. And of course, we mentioned early on that the church is a family as well. And we, we highlighted some of the, the parallels between the church family and also individuals uh, in a physical or, or a, a actual blood-related family. This evening, however, I would like to speak toward those who are not married or, or will not necessarily be married. And the reason why is because, like I mentioned, as we focused heavily upon the family, there's a great deal of preaching on marriage. And marriage is a good thing. Marriage is a blessed thing. Everybody who's married here would say, yes, marriage is a good thing. But did you know that God has not called everyone to be married? And in that God has not called everyone to be married, in that it may or may not be God's will for you to be married, or it may not be God's will for you to be married young, you need to know, young people, that though we put all of these, this time and this effort into understanding marriage and the husband's role and the wife's role and family and how important family is, that doesn't minimize those who aren't married. It shouldn't minimize those who aren't married, nor should it minimize those who aren't fathers and mothers. Regardless of where you find yourself, if you are not married, if you are married, uh, uh, you can learn from this message just like the other messages we could all learn. But this message is going to be teaching us about what God's Word has to say about singleness. Young people, it may be that you get married young. It may be that the Lord would not give you your spouse until 30, 40, 50. It may be that the Lord would not have you to be married at all. And regardless of which state you find yourself in, you need to know that God wants to use you and that God can use you. So this evening we speak on the doctrine of singleness, and we do so through uh, really the definitive biblical teaching on this topic found in 1 Corinthians 7. Now I preached on, I have preached on this before, in fact it was about two and a half years ago, February 23rd, 2014, I preached a message because we walked through 1 Corinthians, right? We walked through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, so I have preached on this message before, but it's going to be from a little bit of a, a different angle, different perspective, some slightly different content, same doctrine. Uh, but slightly different um, presentation this evening as we dig into 1 Corinthians 7. So as we start, uh, take a look with me, if you would, in verse 1. The Bible says, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch 
a woman. So Paul transitions here. This is a transition verse as we, we step into 1 Corinthians 7. It's actually a, a real blessing that we can start here because we don't need to spend too much time in the context. We know uh, some, some things about, and those of you certainly who are here know more about the book, that the book is a book of, of rebuke. It's two believers who are walking in carnality. Um, they, there's many, many dysfunctional things going on with the church and uh, Paul is, is correcting some of these issues. He's answering some of their questions. And we see here, now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, that Paul is directly answering one of the questions, a specific question that was written to him uh, about this issue of a man touching a woman. Now, the city of Cor Corinth, uh, where... The believers resided that Paul is writing to here. That's why it's called 1 Corinthians. Uh, was formerly a very influential city in Greek, in the Greek Empire. Uh, it was not in the Greek Empire at the time of writing, of course. Rome had overthrown Greek many, many year, Greece many, many years earlier. And yet Corinth was still quite an influential city. Uh, they had divided the empire into regions. And Corinth was in the region of Achaia and was, in fact, the most prominent city in that region. So it was still a very prominent city. It was still a very influential city. It was a city of historical strength and influence. But being that it was one of the very prominent cities in the Greek Empire, we need to understand that Corinth was a cesspool of wickedness. There was a tremendous amount of humanistic thinking in Greek culture. You had the philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, and you had the historians, Herodotus, and, and as you consider all of these great thinkers, they began to learn for the sake of learning. They began to pursue academics for the sake of academics. They, they divorced it from morality. They divorced it from God, and the culture became debauched. Now, that carried over into Roman culture. Uh, the, as a matter of fact, Rome pretty well assimilated many of the Greek gods, right? And you, you, you don't think of Corinth when you think of the worst of the cities. You would probably think of, say, Ephesus, where they had the temple unto Diana, right? Who was uh, where they'd have all the temple prostitutes and all that. That, that, that city was, was uh, deeply lost in sin, but so too was Corinth. So as Paul addresses them, he begins by answering this question and and as this city had been under the, the tremendous moral decay of humanism for many, many years, uh, much of that moral decay quite evidently had crept into the church. I mean, if you read just the chapters before, uh, chapter 7, ver chapter 5, verse 1, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Uh, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Literally, there was fornication between, and, and of course, as we pre preached on it, most likely this would have been a mother-in-law or a stepmother, that sort of a situation. But, but we're talking about tremendously sinful things here being reported commonly in the, in the church. So he says here, as he answers the question, I'm going to answer your question here, and he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, the statement is obviously intended to answer this specific question, and as we look into the context which follows we can understand a little bit more of what the controversy is. The question is about moral purity here. Within the Corinthian church was most likely a group that we would call antinomians. An antinomian, anti meaning against, nomian meaning the law. Antinomians. So antinomians were those who abused their liberty in Christ. They, they recognized that they had liberty in Christ, and so they said, because we have liberty in Christ, we are casting away any boundaries. We are casting away any, any um, compulsions of the law. Any, the word I I'm, I'm, I'm want to use is fetters, bound, binds, um, any, anything that would hold us down. And we're just going to go into a life of unrestraint. Antinomian living is, is the idea there. That they would pursue the sinful desires of their flesh. And within this context, Paul is saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Not necessarily that a man should have no physical contact with a woman, but rather that decency and virtue dictate that men should conduct themselves in moral uprightness and purity among women. Moral uprightness and purity. We'll also find, however, that the implication goes deeper than just moral purity. We will find farther along in the text 
that Paul is based upon the current distress and difficulties under which these Corinthian believers lived, recommending that they not marry so that they can focus on Christ. He's actually saying it is a good thing, if you can, that you never pursue a relationship with a woman. Paul's saying that to that group for that time because of the particular distress that they were in. And if we need any reminders about the distress, you can just read in in the book of Acts about Paul's time in in Corinth. Uh, Corinth did not appreciate him, uh, nor did they appreciate those that were, were left behind there to continue in the church. And so what Paul has introduced here is what we'll call, for, for lack of any other way to put it, the doctrine of singleness. Teaching on the superiority of position that is achieved by those who are both willing and able to forego the institution of marriage and devote themselves to the higher cause of Christ. So we continue in the text, and he says this. Nevertheless, he says, It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So Paul was a very balanced man, and he reflects this balance in the next several verses. Marriage has many uses, which we trace down through um, the the text. We have traced it throughout this series, right? One is procreation and family, a vital means by which the church passes from one generation to another. If all of us decide not to marry, not to have children, then, then we're not passing truth down from one generation to another. So it's important that we have family so we can pass along truth. Uh, certainly another is support and help. The scriptures tell us that God created the wife to be the helpmeet, right? And uh, the, the husbands in this room can testify to the fact that we really need that, that there is a completion, that there is a help, that there is a tremendous support system that comes in a committed marriage, not just for one, but for another, that the two become one. But the, the point that Paul reflects in this text, the point that Paul makes here is that of moral protection, that as God has provided only one avenue through which it is natural and, and man's natural and God-given sexual desires can be fulfilled without sin, those who cannot or do not desire to suppress that natural inclination unto sinfulness, unto, unto um, excuse me, that natural inclination unto um, um, fulfilling that sexual desire, should marry so that they have an honorable and God-sanctioned means by which to fulfill that desire. So to avoid fornication, Paul says, the fulfillment of sexual desires outside the context of marriage, that's what fornication means, Paul recommends that men and women marry. And in this we understand some very important truths about the Word of God. We understand that God's plan for one person is not necessarily God's plan for everyone. Have you ever fallen into that rut where you've, you've uh, picked up something and it's been good for you and it's helped you along in your Christian life. And it's not something that's necessarily uh, commanded in Scripture, but it's something that's really helped you or something that, that you've come to appreciate so much and you've fallen into the rut of thinking that everybody needs to fall in line with what you think because it's helped you so much. And then you back up one day and you realize, well, wait a minute. That's, that's what God has led me to do, but maybe that's not what God has led them to do. We understand as well that the needs of one man are not necessarily the needs of others. We each have different abilities. We each have different talents. God has accounted for all of this in his design. We, we do indeed elevate family and marriage. We see God's design in it. We rejoice in those that are raising up the next generation. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful thing. It is the very uh, fabric of a, a civilized society, the, the family unit. We understand the family to be the backbone, not just of society, but also of the church. We recognize the importance of strong marriages and strong families. But perhaps lost in all of this are the very real opportunities, the very real possibilities, and the very real benefits to both uh, God's work and man that come from those who are unencumbered by the responsibilities and cares that a family might impose upon a person. Singleness carries with it spiritual possibilities that married life simply may not be able to afford. 
And this is not something that should be scorned. It's not something that should be ignored, nor is it something that should be devalued in the church of Christ. God has accounted for it. And if God has accounted for it, then we should not ignore it ourselves. Now, as Paul reflects his understanding of the work of the Lord, he approaches this issue in uh, almost an opposite manner uh, to most of the church today. Paul says, it is best for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, but if you must, if you are compelled, if you, if, if you, you must, if you can't suppress the desire for intimacy with a woman, and he's speaking specifically to men here in that instance, well, then marry. It's, it's best, he said, if you stay single, but it certainly isn't wrong to marry. Now, the church today usually goes the opposite direction, right? The church today, it's usually implicit that you will marry, and then every once in a while, there's a rare occasion that it's not. But, but Paul's actually approaching it from the other way around here. And let's remember that as we continue. So Paul says this in verses um, 3 through 5, continuing teaching about marriage. He says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So as uh, Paul is teaching here, he says, so if you can't restrain, if your desire is strong, if you desire to have that kind of a relationship, then you should marry and you should honor that part of the relationship. Don't defraud your husband. Don't defraud your wife. Except it be for a time, for a spiritual purpose. And then you come together again so that Satan can't tempt your spouse with these desires. Thus Paul says that there's a responsibility for intimacy between a husband and a wife. And this is why husbands and wives, and we, we haven't really talked about this much, but this is why you, you, should, you must not ever use intimacy with your spouse as a weapon. You can't do that. The, the scriptures specifically tell us, defraud not one another. Never use it as a weapon. To withhold intimacy due to some argument or to get your way is to deprive your spouse of something which is theirs by right and which can lead them into the temptations of Satan and take them into a lifestyle of sin, adultery or fornication, which is intended to be combated through the honorable state of marriage. As we have spoken of for several weeks now, the married man or woman is obligated to their spouse. You belong to them. They belong to you. And to defraud them is to defraud something which is their right. And the only time Paul says when this is an appropriate action is by consent for a season, a time agreed upon for abstinence for the purpose of fasting and prayer in order to seek the Lord's favor or wisdom for a temporary period of time only then to come together again. Notice, however, Paul's statement in verse 6. He says, but I speak this by permission, not by commandment. Now, this is not talking about not defrauding your husband or wife. This is speaking about getting married. He says, I am I'm speaking by permission that you can get married, not by commandment. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not commanding people to marry. He's permitting them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to marry. He's not calling upon men and women to get married. He's expressing an understanding that marriage is not wrong. We talked earlier in the service about the antinomians. Those who would see grace as a means by which to have license over their bodies to do whatever they wanted to do. Scattered throughout the church were also other philosophies. It's amazing. We're, we're a generation removed from Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And you can already trace dozens of heresies. How quickly heresies spread in the church. How quick Satan is to take the truth and twist it. And, and, and deceive and confuse. Just a little error here, a little error there. And the next thing you know, the gospel is not even what it was. It's so quick. So among these other groups other philosophies, some of them having liberal views of human sexuality by declaring 
uh, uh, human sexuality to, to be free, others saw human sexuality as an inherent evil, rooted wholly in the world, and so something to be refused at every turn. And, and, and so you'd have this group over here preaching, do whatever you want, this group over here preaching complete celibacy, or else you're, 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 you're in sin. This would be the spirit that formed the old monasteries of old, what we would call the ascetics. Men who would renounce any worldly pleasure or possession with a direct goal of pursuing what would lead to spiritual improvement. Then it became a legalistic thing and they thought you have to do this to be right with God. Paul's words here challenge both of these extremes. Remember we talked this morning about the pendulum swing of Christianity and other areas of our life where one person sees somebody take advantage of a doctrine and so they swing to the other end and there's just as much error there. Paul's kind of taken a balanced perspective here, as God regularly does. I, I've often said that if you see two polar opposites in Christianity, both of which have some problems, generally look for God right about here, right about in the middle. So Paul says, I speak by permission and not by commandment. Any dogmatic assertion of right or wrong in this regard would be confronted. It is not wrong to reject earthly ambition and to pursue heavenly priorities, nor is it wrong to pursue those earthly ambitions which God has given to us freely. Spiritual success is not measured by a template of physical actions. While there are certain physical situations, such as singleness, which lend themselves to certain advantages, and then marriage, which lends itself to other advantages... It cannot be said that any one course is what every man or woman should take, unless the Bible explicitly says that. Just as marriage has its spiritual advantages, so too does singleness, and we'll see that as we continue. Paul says in verse 7, For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God. One after this manner, one after that. That's what Paul's saying, right? I, I, I wish every man was like me, didn't get married, could devote himself 100% to the Word of God, didn't have to worry about uh, supporting a family or supporting children, didn't have to put money into that, can live off of very, very little. If you get thrown in prison, you don't have to worry about what's my family going to do. You can just throw yourself entirely. I, he said, I would that every man were like that, but not every man has that gift from God. One man has this gift, another has that gift. And Paul says, I'm not going to play that game. We're not going to play the game of trying to put every Christian into a box, the same box, and say, if you're not in this box, you're wrong. Because God has gifts, varying gifts, diverse gifts, different callings upon us. Now, we know where the lines are drawn, right? The, the lines are drawn. God calls some to singleness, some to marriage. He does not call anyone to sodomy, right? That's not, that's not within God's plan. You can't say, well, God has called me in a third direction. That, 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 that doesn't work because the Bible explicitly talks about that. The Bible makes that clear. So Paul's not saying you can go in whatever direction you want. Take it in whatever direction you want. But Paul is saying that God has not gifted every man the same way. And we need to understand that. So Paul's advice in verses 8 and 9, he says, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. It is good, proper, and virtuous, Paul says, for a man to remain unmarried. He says, my recommendation to those who are not married, not committed, and to those who are widows, so they don't have any commitments, stay that way says, that's my recommendation to you. However, he says, if you can't contain, if your desire for intimacy is so great that it will push you into sin, then find a spouse so you can be right with God. Now, this forms the foundation for Paul again to speak to married couples. Uh, and this was the context of the question which was asked to him. So this is the focus of his words. Is it good for a man to touch a woman? Paul is answering. Remember, that's, what, that's the question Paul is answering here, right? Is it good for a man to touch a woman? Is it good to have physical intimacy? And asking questions about moral purity. 
Now, this is what we find in verses 10 through 16. More instruction toward husbands and wives. That's not our focus this evening. We're not necessarily talking about husbands and wives. We've, we've covered that over the past several weeks. And if you want a thorough, more thorough exposition of all of this, um, February, what did I say? February 13th or something of 2014. Go back to those messages. They're online, LegacyBaptistChurch.net, and you can listen to each one in turn. But in verse 17, so I'm going to skip verses 10 through 16. In verse 17, we find Paul shift his focus back towards more general advice and teaching. And look with me, if you would, in verses 17 through 24. It will be up on the screen, or certainly you can read it in your Bibles. The Scriptures tell us, beginning in verse 17, But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. Walk in the calling that God has given you. And so ordain I in all churches. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any man called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be free, be made free, use it rather. If you have the opportunity, go for it. But use it. Use it to the glory of God. But don't, don't seek it. Don't, don't demand it. Because I'm free in Christ, now I have to be free in, in my physical circumstances. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also, he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Yea, excuse me, ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Whether I'm here or there, whether I'm this or that, whether I've got these talents or those talents, I'm God's. I'm going to serve him where I am. What we've just read here is Paul's balanced teaching. How does it th thus relate to marriage and singleness, though? Because that's his context, right? Don't divorce this from the context. That's his context. Well, in these eight verses, Paul has called upon each man to abide in the calling which the Lord has given to him. In other words, uh, the, the time in which he was called. That would likely be the time in which he accepted Christ. You don't have to change your physical circumstances because you've accepted Christ, in other words. There is no physical set of circumstances wherein you are not able to abide in Christ, unless, of course, you're in a sinful circumstance, right? If I worked at, at, at a place that was sinful and I get saved, most likely the Lord is going to very quickly divert me out of that work environment because it's not virtuous. It can't be redeemed if you're working at certain types of, of places. Paul notes that the Lord distributes to every man differently and that these differences are of the Lord in order that he might accomplish his purposes. We live with what the Lord has given to us. We trust that God knows best and we walk with him regardless. Abide in your calling. And he uses a couple of examples here, right? He first used the example of circumcision. Jewish believers of the day would often pressure the uncircumcised to get circumcised after salvation. Uh, this was... Uh, a, a, a big deal in, in Galatians, certainly. As we read Galatians, we see that. Uh, we know that Paul went and stood before the Jerusalem Council for this very issue, where he defended the reality that many of the believers that he was teaching were not getting circumcised, and he was not compelling them to be so. And the Jewish believers would look down upon those who had not been circumcised as if they were less godly or, or as if something was missing from their spiritual life. Now, we can relate that to all sorts of things in the church today, right? When a person gets saved and immediately someone thinks you need to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and if you don't, then, then you've got a problem. Well, we see a couple of commands, right? We see a command to be free from sin, and we see the command to get baptized. We don't see a whole lot more. Paul says, however, that circumcision, uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. If, if you are called in uncircumcision, then stay that way. You don't have to get circumcised. If you were called in circumcision, well, then stay that way. Paul then uses the example of social status. If a man is born as a servant, indentured servant, a slave, and so he's not free, when he gets saved, he has been freed in the Lord. Of course, that's what the scriptures tell us, right? 
the, the scriptures tell us that there's no male or female, there's no bond or free, but we are all one in Christ. And so here was what was happening. These people would get saved, and immediately they were going to say, okay, well, I'm on the same level as my boss. Because there's no male or female, there's no bond or free, there's no Jew or Gentile in Christ, which means you're not in charge of me anymore. And they demand freedom. They demand physical freedom because they have spiritual freedom. That's not what Christ was saying. That's not what God was saying. That's not what the gospel promises. The gospel doesn't promise that the moment you get saved, you, you have no shackles on this earth anymore, that you have no authorities on this earth anymore. And Paul was saying, if you're, if you're a bondman, you, you can stay that way and still serve Christ where you are. If you're a free man, you, you can stay that way and, and still serve Christ where you are. And I love what he says here. He says, and if you are a bondman, you're, you're a free man in Christ. And if you are a free man, you're, you're, you're bound to Christ. The bondman is bound to Christ, but is also free in Christ. The free man is bound in Christ and free in Christ. There's a liberty of spirit. There's a liberty to the gospel. But we also have placed ourselves under a master, have we not? Paul says, I, therefore, the servant of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Paul called himself a bondman to Christ. And yet we have that liberty... Paul says in Galatians 5, 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Do these two contradict? Well, no. No. We are free in Christ, yet we follow him for what he has done for us. So Paul uses these examples. Paul is not saying that, that we can't accept the good that comes. He says to the bondmen, If you become free, well, great. If, if the Lord opens up that door for you, if you want to walk through it, walk through it. But serve the Lord there too. The only thing which inhibits our ability to serve the Lord is when we are so caught up trying to become something that God hasn't made us or obtain something God hasn't given to us that we fail to serve Him in the place where He has called us. We're so busy looking at the grass on the other side of the fence that we forget to serve God where we are. We're so busy trying to become something God hasn't made us or get something that God hasn't given to us that we fail to use what he, where He's placed us today. We aren't the servants of men. We aren't the servants of tradition. We aren't the servants of ritual. We are not the servants of religion. We are not the servants of society. We are not the servants of culture. We are the servants of God. Now, all of this teaching is within the context of marriage and singleness. It's right for a man not to touch a woman. And you can perhaps see what Paul is saying. Don't allow yourself to assume that you must be married to be right with God. Don't think that because you're a certain age and you're not married that there's something wrong with you. If God has not brought that person along yet, it's because God wants you where you are. Serve Him where you are. And if the Lord changes that, if the Lord were to bring the spouse along, well, praise God. Pursue it and then serve Him in that marriage. Don't allow yourself to assume that marriage is without question the place God wants you. Don't allow yourself likewise to assume that marriage is wrong or that you aren't going to be married. Just... Serve God where you are and let him take you where he wants to take you tomorrow. Serve God today with expectation for tomorrow. And the point is this. Let God decide these things and put your effort into serving him. And, and God will take care of it if you'll serve him. And we find this application as Paul continues in the text, verses 25 to 27. He says, Now concerning virgins... I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment as one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress, and this is where we see the situation. It is good for the present distress. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. The time in which they were at this moment in history, Paul described as this present distress. I mentioned a little bit already, it was not an easy time to be a believer. And in line with Paul's teaching on marriage, he tells them that there is a definite benefit for those who were willing, who were able, based upon their own control over their desires for intimacy, who were willing to forego marriage. He says, if you can forego, 
then there is a real benefit if you do for this time. So he says, are you bound to a wife? Are you already married? Well, here's the thing. Don't be loosed. See, because if, if, if we're not careful, we, start, we, we, we read Paul's teaching, oh, it's good. It's a good thing that, that a person not be married. And the married man says, aha, see, that, that there's, there's Paul's teaching. And he, he would start divorcing his wife so that he could be single like Paul recommended. So Paul's saying, I'm not, I'm not going there. Are, are you bound? Don't seek to be loosed. But are you loosed? Are, are you not bound to a wife right now? Well, don't seek a wife right now. The same principle as before. Abide in the calling that God has given you. Serve the Lord. Be content. If the Lord were to noticeably and unmistakably change that calling, if he diverts your path, then follow that path. Marriage is not wrong. Not being married is not wrong. But marriage does come with a warning. And this is interesting. And let's pursue that as we continue in the text here. Verses 28 to 31. Marriage comes with a warning. Paul says, But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they... And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it. For the fashion of this world passeth away. Paul warns that marriage can bring about conflicts of interest. Where hard choices need to be made. Imagine living in a society of persecution. We have not faced that. Persecution right now is a door getting slammed into your face. Somebody calling you names on social media. Reading articles about the problems with Christianity. But, but we, we've not faced persecution in the true sense in, in the Western church, or at least in the American church. But imagine that you're in a context of persecution and you're having to make difficult decisions about whether or not you're going to live or die, whether or not you are going to risk your life to have, a, have a, an underground church, whether or not you're going to risk your life to get those Bibles where they need to go. And while having a family or not having a family doesn't necessarily matter, it could matter, couldn't it? Could my decision to risk my life to have a, a, a home church, uh, a underground church in my house be affected by being a married man? It could. It would make that decision harder, would it not? It would make it harder for me to be willing to risk my life knowing I have a wife and children. That's the idea here when he says, you shall have trouble in the flesh. There will be an added layer of difficulty for you in a time of distress when you have a family to think about on top of thinking about serving the Lord and doing, doing what is best by Him. The balance between using the world and not, not abusing the world. Paul references the real possibility in times of persecution that those that are married, it's, there's going to be a time where they need to act as though they're not. They, they've got to live in, in personal preservation. They that weep as though they've wept not. They that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And then he says, they that buy as though they possess not. You've got to be willing to give up everything in times of great distress. The balance between using the world, not abusing this world, is more difficult with family, isn't it? Money doesn't mean as much to a single man because it can go a lot farther. Deprivation doesn't mean as much to a single man because it's just him, right? It's easy enough to de deprive myself, but when I see my children deprived... It's easy enough to, to, to go without a meal or two on any given day, but, but my children going without a meal or two on any given day? I, I'm uncomfortable even thinking that. It, it makes me uncomfortable just saying that up here. What happens if our whole family goes down to one meal a day? I'm, me, okay. Wife, okay. Children? Danger doesn't mean as much to a single man, right? It's me. I live, I die. If I die, I go to be with the Lord. Praise the Lord. My children. 
my wife. Even now, there are places I won't go as a minister, not because I'm afraid for myself, but because I want to be coming home every night. I, I, won't, I don't have the boldness to go downtown and maybe witness in some of the places that I might otherwise because I need to make sure I come home every night. Now, some may call that faithless. I'm comfortable with that because the Lord can protect and I get that. But it's still there in the, in the mind of every married man. I have to care more about making money, not because of me, not because money matters, but because I have a, a family to provide for. And this is the nature. This is the material baggage that comes along with being married. This, these are the troubles in the flesh. Paul says, I warn you, they're going to be there. You're going to have those if you get married. And Paul specifies this in verses 32 through 35. Notice what he says. But I would have you without carefulness. I would have you not need to care about things of this earth. He says, I, if it were up to me, I'd have you without any carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belongeth to the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things of the world. How he may please his wife. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord. That she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world. How she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit. Not that I may cast a snare upon you, but that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. If you are unmarried, you can attend unto the Lord without distraction. Young people, while you are unmarried, you have a flexibility, you have an ability to serve the Lord in a way that may not be there after you get married. Because you can focus on the Lord without distraction. That's something that you should cherish. Even if you want to get married, even if you do get married at a young age, there is a season of life where you are not married that you can do things that you may not otherwise be able to do. Don't be in such a hurry to find a spouse that you short-circuit the ministry opportunities that God may want you to have otherwise. An unmarried person can attend upon the Lord without distraction. Now, uh, we're going to stop here by way of uh, exposition. We're going to spend a little bit of time taking all of these truths, bringing them together into coherent application this evening. But that's what Paul is saying. A, a husband naturally will, will, will have to devote some time and his effort to his wife. A wife will naturally and rightfully, right, have to devote time and effort to, to her husband. That's a right thing in a marriage. It's a necessary thing. It's an essential thing in marriage. And Paul is saying, and, and, and this, is, this is the rub, this is the advantage to the, to the unmarried man or woman. The unmarried man or woman is not obliged by the word of God to attend upon another person with such level of care, which means they can take that time and that effort that they would have devoted to a wife or a husband and give it to the Lord. So, a couple of uh, applications as we close out this message today. Doctrine of singleness. Number one, singleness is not a spiritual disadvantage. Singleness is not a spiritual disadvantage. Yes, we spend time in church focusing upon a subset of people who are married and who have families. Yes, we regard those who have marriages and families as playing an extremely important role in the church and in society. Yes, those who raise the next generation are extremely important to God. And I'm not preaching this message to minimize families. As a matter of fact, we've spent the last six weeks emphasizing families. That's why I'm preaching this message, to balance our thinking. In many ways, the reason why we focus so much extra time on those who are married with families is because with the, these steps there are added responsibilities and tremendous spiritual burdens, tremendous spiritual efforts that the single person doesn't have. So we spend our time focusing upon marriage for a time because there's an added level of difficulty in the spiritual life of those who are. 
However, the church does indeed spend most of its time, if we think about it, focusing upon individual believers, right? At any given time, the majority of the messages we preach are speaking to you as a believer about your personal spiritual walk with the Lord. There's a temptation, however, due to, to, to a Christian's understanding of the importance of the next generation to elevate marriage and family at the expense of singleness. And that's not right. Because if God has called someone to being single, whether it's for a season or for their life, we should not despise the calling the Lord has placed upon them. It's the place God has put them. And praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that they can attend upon him without distraction. Praise the Lord they can give that added time to the church that the married man may not be able to. Praise the Lord that he can give that extra time to other needy people and families that the married man may not be able to. Praise the Lord he can give that extra money to needy people and to the church that the married man may not be able to. That, that, that's not something to be scorned or ignored or minimized or marginalized. It's, it's, it's a valid place for God to place people. Singleness is not a spiritual disadvantage. And in fact, as we have talked about it today, there are some serious advantages. And this leads us to our second point. Point number two. Singleness is a thing to be cherished and used. Everyone is single at some point in their lives, right? Right? Everyone is single for at least the first little while. And as believers, this is a time that you ought to cherish. Young people, I've mentioned this already. Parents, we know the challenges of a... Of a I think every parent in here knows the challenges of a consistent, quiet time with the Lord, right? House full of kids, busy day, job, everything going on. Takes an added level of, of discipline to get to the point where you have that consistent time with the Lord. As a matter of fact, uh, I know a guy who got married not too long ago and he was uh, sending some prayer requests along recently and one of his prayer requests was, I've found my spiritual life harder to maintain since being married. Welcome to the club. <laughs> that first year, if you've had a vibrant spiritual life, that first year can be a little bit tough. As you're learning to adjust to married life, as you're learning to adjust to not being just in charge of yourself, not having all your own time, not, having, not being able to set such a rigid routine because you have someone else now. Women learning how to merge spiritual life and, and submit it to their husband. That's, that, that's, that's not an easy thing. We know the added pressures of providing for little one's parents the challenges that, that, it, that it poses. We know, parents, how much time and effort children require of us, especially when they are young. And all of the time and the effort and the money which goes into our children, which goes into our spouse, could indeed go into others if we didn't have a family. Now, we have families because that's where God has called us, that's where he wants us, that's what we do. We, so, so it's not wrong. But again... For perspective's sake, imagine what single men and women can do. Imagine how they can serve. Young people, if the Lord were not to call you to have a spouse early on in your adulthood, imagine the flexibility that you would have to serve the Lord. One of the uh, missionaries that we pray for is Dan Zakes. Zakes go here. Dan's their son. And uh, he's out there in Utah with Eagle Nest, Eagle's Nest um, Ministries. I forget if the full title there. But um, that man has a tremendous flexibility in serving the Lord that he has used to full effect. He's gone to Pakistan, done a missions trip out there. He has hitchhiked across the country. Uh, things that as a, a married man I could never do. But his flexibility, because of his situation, is tremendous. And he uses it to full effect. And praise the Lord for that. Now, does that mean he's going to be single forever? Not necessarily. But praise the Lord that he's using this season of his life to positively serve the kingdom of God in a way that a married man may never be able to do. 
Young person, while you're single, cherish that and use it. Use the time you have to profit the Lord. Use the freedom of time and perhaps of money that you may have. You can serve the church in different ways, exciting ways. You can put time into discipling others that a married person may simply not be able to do. You can be flexible enough to meet people on their schedule. You can put resources into ministries that have needs that married men may not be able to. This time of singleness should be seen as an opportunity. Third and finally, our final point today. Singleness is not for everyone. Now, this is that balance. Just, this, is, this is just a point for balance. Let's keep a balanced mind here. Not everyone is well-wired to be single. As a matter of fact, I would, I would be willing to, uh, to say that the majority of us aren't wired to be single. And that's why we see so many families. It's very likely that more people in this room will end up married than will end up single. Marriage fulfills basic human needs and desires. And it's God's ordained way of doing that and it's a right thing. Not everyone is wired to need those as much as others, however. I do not want to imply that because singleness is indeed in many ways a position of spiritual advantage that anyone should be opposed to getting married. Let's, let's just stick in that place of balance. The call is for each of us to be content where we are and to wait on God's timing if he chooses to transition us to a different place in life. While God has not brought that person along for whom you should marry, serve God with the flexibility of singleness. Don't put your time and effort into finding a spouse at the expense of how God could use you. Be a man or a woman of godliness and faithfulness and allow God to take care of that part. If you want to be married, that's a good thing. But don't allow your desire for marriage to undermine God's ability to use you as a single person. And likewise, don't allow your desire to marry to consume you so that you cannot be good you cannot be used by God as a single person because you're so busy, stuck on not being a single person anymore. Young people, you'll figure that out as you get a little older. Wait on the Lord. Serve Him where you are and allow Him to do the rest. The doctrine of singleness. Singleness is not an inferior existence and in many ways, spiritually speaking, we find it advantageous. And as we end our Family Emphasis series this week, it's important that we understand families to be a part of the church but not the whole of the church yes we are a non-age segregated church which means uh, in practice in many ways we uh, although many people would say we we disregard our children in fact we believe it to be elevating our children uh, and that's why we do it the way we do it we highly value the family and the opportunities which families contribute but God's kingdom is not made up of families, is it? God's kingdom is made up of individuals as a part of one spiritual family. There are no spiritual grandchildren. And may God help us to appreciate the calling that he has laid upon each one of our lives and the season of life in which he has placed us without guilt, without shame, without regret, and without a need, a compulsion to change where we are to feel like we can be used of God. God can use you as you are, where you are, as long as you are walking in obedience to Him and seeking to follow Him with all your heart. Let's close in prayer.